This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, March 21st, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, we'll find out how the past and present are working together in Van Buren. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports on the Wilhoff House's history and its new role in education. That's in about 10 minutes. State legislatures, including Arkansas's, across the country are passing laws making obtaining abortions more difficult. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, more women in the United States are choosing medical abortions using targeted medications to terminate a pregnancy rather than a surgical abortion. We're about to hear a report. Please note the following report contains medical details that could be too sensitive for some listeners. Planned Parenthood, Great Plains, headquartered in Kansas, provides sexual and reproductive health care to women, men, and families in clinics in Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma, staffed by certified nurse practitioners, licensed physicians, and registered nurses. Planned Parenthood, Great Plains, operates two clinics in Arkansas, one in Rogers and another in Little Rock. Both provide medical abortions, dispensing prescription abortion pills. The surgical abortions are available at a private clinic, Little Rock Family Planning. That's seasoned private practice obstetrician gynecologist, Dr. Janet Cathy, a provider at the Little Rock Planned Parenthood Clinic. She says surgical abortions, invasive procedures requiring anesthesia, can be administered up to 21 weeks of pregnancy, but most occur at 12 weeks. An embryo develops into a fetus by the eighth week of pregnancy. By comparison, medical abortions, abortion pills, cannot be administered in most states, including in Arkansas, through Planned Parenthood clinics or by a willing medical practitioner past 10 weeks of pregnancy. The requirements to obtain an an abortion in Arkansas, be it medical or surgical, you have to have an office visit to get consent for the procedure. You have to get an ultrasound and you have to get a blood type and a a blood count. But you have to have a specific consent 72 hours before having either a surgical or a medical abortion. The most commonly used abortion medication is mifeprestone, brand name Mifeprex. It was developed as RU486 is what it was called for a long time. And it was just FDA approved in the United States in the year 2000. It had been used for decades before in Europe. So it is a drug that has been around a long time and has a very well-established pattern of safety. In Arkansas, minors must have notarized consent for a medical abortion from a parent or legal guardian, along with the required medical exams. Abortion pills are not available over the counter or by prescription. No, the only ones in Arkansas that dispense it are Planned Parenthood here in Little Rock on Camp on Aldersgate Road, and then Little Rock Family Planning, the private clinic. To obtain a medical abortion, two clinic visits are required. And on the first visit, they get an ultrasound to date the pregnancy, and they get blood work, and they get a series of consent forms. Um, The consents are state-mandated, and the consent has to be given by a board-certified OBGYN. Patients are required by Arkansas law to wait three days before returning for a second appointment. 
And then the drug mefepristone is dispensed by, again, a board certified OBGYN. They take one dose and then they take a second drug called misoprostol or Cytotec, and that is taken at home 24 to 48 hours later, given by the clinic. A medical abortion occurs over time. With a medication abortion, after the mefepristone, uh, they do not really notice anything from the mefepristone. They're not going to have any bleeding. It's not going to make them sick. They can do their usual activity. At 24 hours, they take the misoprostol or the Cytotec, and it's that second medicine that will make them have bleeding and cramping and pass that tissue. The mefepristone, what it does is it blocks the hormone going to the pregnancy. When the hormone is blocked, the pregnancy will quit growing. Then when they take the misoprostol, it causes the uterus to have some cramps and contractions and that tissue is passed. Usually they have about four to six hours of, of cramps and clots, and then it'll slow and it'll be like a period for about a week. It might drag on a little bit longer. Medical abortions are safer compared to surgical abortions, she says. The primary risk of the medicine is uh, bleeding. However, less than 1% of women are going to have enough bleeding that they have to go to the hospital. There's always risk of infection. However, overall, the risk of significant complications are less than 1 in 100,000. And compared to like a pregnancy, the pregnancy complications are about 18 per 100,000. So it's very, very safe. A two-week clinical follow-up appointment's required while abortions are at an all-time historic low in the U.S. One in four women will seek to terminate a pregnancy, with over half choosing medical abortion. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy nonprofit dedicated to sexual and reproductive health and rights. More states allow telemedicine consults for medical abortions now, but that remains prohibited in Arkansas. I think that medical abortions are becoming much more common. They're now almost over 50%. And it's just because of uh, the privacy issues, the convenience issues. You pick the time that can work into your schedule. So there, and, and just like I said, more privacy, more convenience, and also you don't have to have an invasive procedure. Surgical abortions continue to be offered in Arkansas despite a near-total abortion ban being approved by a pro-life Republican-majority Arkansas legislature a year ago. But weeks before that law was to take effect, ACLU Arkansas sued, seeking a preliminary injunction to block the law granted by a U.S. District Court judge. Last year, over two dozen U.S. states passed 100 laws restricting abortion, with 500 anti-abortion restrictions introduced in 40 states this year. Conservative legislatures nationwide also aim to restrict the use of medical abortion, abortion pills. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized the constitutional right to abortion in the famous case Roe v. Wade. But now, nearly 50 years later, a conservative majority Supreme Court is poised this summer to possibly overturn 
the constitutional right to an abortion. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The number of active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas continues to lower. The Arkansas Department of Health reports there are just more than 1,500 active cases. That's the lowest total since May 2020. The ADH reports another 22 deaths from the virus in Sunday's count, however, bringing Arkansas's number of fatal cases to 11,100. Washington Regional's community COVID-19 testing at its drive through clinic is over. A press release Friday afternoon announced that the testing because of low demand, would end that day. The Washington Regional COVID-19 hotline is also ceasing operations. Testing information can still be obtained through local health departments and most pharmacies. An automated COVID-19 information line remains available with details about COVID-19 vaccinations and other testing locations. That number, it's a 479 area code, 463-2055. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd, is American singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band. And performing Friday, March 25th, is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at thundertix.com for more. The Idol Class Magazine presents the 2022 Black Apple Art Awards, Friday, March 25th at 214 Creative Hub in Springdale. This event experience includes music, dance, art installations, and more. IdolClassMag.com slash BlackApple2022 for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. One of Arkansas's oldest buildings was recently restored by the University of Arkansas Fort Smith and will soon open to the public as a museum and research facility. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth takes us to Van Buren to learn more. It's a sunny Wednesday morning as people trickle into a small 18th century log building just off of the Arkansas River. A new handicap accessible ramp leads up to the entrance past the newly painted salmon color exterior. The restored wood floors gleam like new, while cut-out glass panels on the walls show the original interior of the house. I mean, down to the nails that went into the roof, went down to an actual periodic nail of when they actually roofed the house. So there's a lot of of background checks that goes into, you know, scraping to the walls to try to get back to what the original paint colors were during that time period. Um, and then uh, it was funny, we made the comment that we thought the, the floors probably looked better now than they did when they were originally put in. Um, and then you can see, I mean, we've got view windows in various rooms where you can actually see in the walls and see up in the ceiling and the attic. It just, I mean, it's not traditional construction. I mean, those are, those are logs. That's Stephen Almond, the project manager for Crawford Construction, and Travis Bartlett, one of the architects for MAHG firm, who worked in restoring the house. The Wilhoff House on 3rd Street in Van Buren was built by Leonard Wilhoff in 1836 and has stood in various iterations here for nearly two centuries. With 10-foot-tall ceilings and four rooms, the one-story building has been renovated to look and feel as close to the original house as possible. 
Tom Wing, a professor at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, and director of the site, says the restoration process was extensive and involved repairing termite and weather damage to the wood, updating pipes, heating, and air systems, and all of the adjustments needed to turn an old home into a museum. Stacy Hurst, secretary of the Arkansas Department of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism, addressed the crowd before the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Uh, it contributes to the quality of life, uh, our collective memory, but it draws visitors. I see the A&P is represented and invested here. This will draw visitors to your state who want to learn about interesting things about the United States of America, and this really does tell that story. So, congratulations. This first round of visitors include members of the Grant Council, local and state government officials, and those who've worked on the house since the project began. Rich Rappin was the site's initial project manager for Crawford Construction. So uh, for me as a project manager on this project, it was just one of those things, like the Grant and Scott house that this company did, like Judge Parker's courthouse that we restored in Fort Smith, uh, those are labors of love. They're not just a job because we went up because we were low bid. It was a job that we got to do because we were restoring history. So it's all about the history. Tom Wing says the project has been underway since at least 2012 when the university acquired the property from the Cobb family. Sisters Sandra Pearson and Melissa Wick decided to donate the house for preservation after their father died in 2012. Well, the lady who owned the house before my parents got it was named Ora Smith, and Ora was very big on preservation and history and genealogy. And when she died, she left it to my parents, John and Zoelle and Cobb. In their will, they had said they wanted the house to be preserved historically, and we discussed it and said there's only one answer. Get in touch with Tom Wing, and Tom Wing will get the ball rolling. This is Wing's second major restoration project. He's also director of the Drennan Scott Historic Site, the oldest house in Van Buren, and just up the hill from Wilhoff's. Wing says the two sites are invaluable to Arkansas history. We, we, have, a, we have a story here of a tale of two, two sides of the tracks. We, the University of Arkansas Fort Smith already owns John Drennan's home. He was the proverbial rich man on the hill, and uh, he was very influential in, in Arkansas in a lot of different levels. Uh, Leonard Wilhoff was a working class man, but his story is equally significant and equally important because it tells the side of really most of us uh, that, that aren't in John Drennan's category. So, so from, a, from a history professor standpoint, uh, from an educational standpoint, I don't think we could have done any better here by being able to contrast the two, uh, two levels of social class in the, in the in the two houses that we have. Wilhoff immigrated to the region from Germany and ran a bakery on Main Street in Van Buren, providing food provisions to settlers moving west. The story of Leonard Wilhoff is, is, uh, is an American story. He served his country as well, another part of the American story. Uh, in the 1840s, when the United States went to war with Mexico, he joined the, uh, the Arkansas Volunteers, and he went to fight in Mexico in the Mexican War. He was actually elected to, to carry the flag for his company. He was the flag bearer. He carried a flag that was sewn by the ladies of Crawford County and presented to the company on the courthouse lawn here at Van Buren. They marched to Mexico, and before they marched out, Leonard told those ladies that day, they gave him the flag. He said, I will bring this flag back or you will find Leonard's body underneath it. 
Two years later, he brought it back to Van Buren. That flag is in the old State House collection today. It's the only flag from the Mexican War that, that's a that's a remnant from that time period right there. So we have that artifact. We're gonna we're we're working to bring it on loan and put it on display later later this year. And Wing says now that legacy will carry on with Wilhoff's home. Besides being a public historic site, the house will operate as a teaching laboratory for archaeologists, museum professionals, and historians. He says there's still some work to be done, but he hopes to have the site open to the public by next month. Uh, we've got some tweaking and things to do here, some gardening work to do, but uh, we're looking at, a, at an early April, probably about the first, of, first week of April, second week of April opening, and then we'll be open from uh, sometime in April all the way through November. So uh, uh, Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays from 10 to 4.30, those are our days of operation. Three, two, For one. Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Hey. Just ahead on our show, we return to the archives at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History to chronicle the career of a legend of labor relations in Arkansas. If you look at our statistical measures, uh, Arkansas wages are below Mississippi, the lowest in the nation. Our per capita income is the second lowest in the nation. Our wages are 80 cents an hour below the national average. J. Bill Becker, the subject of this week's Prior Center Profile, just ahead. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the City of Fayetteville, and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444-3456 or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. Governor Asa Hutchinson is praising Arkansas lawmakers for their work approving a budget for the coming fiscal year. Lawmakers adjourned the session last week. Speaking to the Political Animals Club in Little Rock last week at the governor's mansion, the governor said lawmakers stayed focused on the key issues. This fiscal session was outstanding. And I'll just tell you, uh, from my time as governor, the spirit of the General Assembly has never been better. The optimism and collegiality has never been more predominant in the general session as this last session. And the reason is it's intentional leadership. Governor Hutchinson seemed most proud of work done to address a staffing shortage at the Department of Human Services and raising police officer pay. The state's salary increase now makes Arkansas second in pay for state troopers in the South, up from seventh. The legislature also signed into law a one-time $5,000 bonus for law enforcement at the local level, which the governor explained is a signal to local government officials to look at their budgets and see where they can do more. What we have experienced, the kind of growth we have experienced, is, is somewhat healthy. Uh, we measure uh, our progress by what we can do for those people who don't have enough, and in Arkansas, we're not doing enough for those kinds of people. That is the voice of J. Bill Becker. More about him in just a second. I will tell you that with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome. Hello, Kyle. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Okay. Uh, J. Bill Becker is not one of those names who I think would be considered a household name. In no, not at all. Um, you know, most of the people that I talk to uh, when I was working on this for this week, i mentioned his name and they had no idea who he was. Isn't, that isn't to say he was not influential in Arkansas politics. 
No, he was kind of, you know, you would say behind the scenes, but he really wasn't. I looked, and he was in the news scores maybe hundreds of times uh, during his tenure as president of the AFL-CIO from, gosh, long time, 1966 to, no, 64 to 96. Wow. Yeah, more than three decades. And it was when the AFL, which was... Help me here. The American, American Federation of Labor right. merged with the uh, CIO, which was the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Yes, yeah. people don't realize they, I, they used to be separate, yeah. and then in the '60s they they merged, combined, and he was the first Arkansas president of the combined organizations, and he he uh, really made a name for not only himself but for labor. In Arkansas, which has never been a huge factor because it's a, a right-to-work state. Right. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that happened in the 60s with labor, but this this next cut is just kind of him talking about how poor this state was. Right, and, and he was big on statistics. He knew them. He knew his job. He knew the numbers, and, and he could rattle them off. If you look at our statistical measures, uh, Arkansas wages are below Mississippi, the lowest in the nation. Our per capita income is the second lowest in the nation. Our wages are 80 cents an hour below the national average. I would say generally the quality of life of our people has been expanded, but we have to be reminded, I think, all the time that we still have in Arkansas 47% of our families who are living in poverty. And uh, we're not touching enough people, people who really need help. I think as our economy grows, the labor force uh, in Arkansas will be responsive to that growth, and so will the labor movement. I think we've had a relatively good success. Uh, Workers have organized into unions uh, as industry has come into Arkansas, and I think we are uh, a partner uh, in this kind of progress. 47% of Arkansas households in poverty. Yes. That wow. was, yeah. And that was in 1969 he was talking there. Yeah. So this th- that was even before the 1970s recession. Right. So it gets worse. Wow. Yeah, especially for the, the, the minimum wage worker, the, the, the laborers that would be union members that, that he stood for very strongly. Very strongly. And, yeah. and, and you talked to, to our partner, Roby Brock, with Talk Business and Politics about Mr. Becker. Right. And, and he, uh, well, this is what he said. So J. Bill Becker comes into uh, the Arkansas AFL-CIO to lead that movement really as it's it's, it's peaking post-World War II in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, labor had its biggest gains. Uh, obviously, the economy was cooking pretty good um, after the war. Um, so, I mean, he gets to lead the organization through, you know, those early decades of, you know, really fantastic growth and um and really to where Arkansas was at its peak in terms of the labor movement. Again, it still was not, you know, a, 
majority of the workers in the state, but it, it was substantial and they had a lot of political influence uh, in large part due to the fact that you know, the labor union nationally was tied to uh, Democrats out of Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal. And uh, and there still were vestiges of all of that across the state of Arkansas politically. So the AFL-CIO, that was an important endorsement uh, for people to get in a Democratic primary. And you never saw, never saw a piece of political uh, pamphlet or a sign that didn't have a union label on it. That was tantamount to losing a Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patronize labor uh, and use one of the labor shops for all your printed material. That's Roby Brock talking about J. Bill Becker, who is our subject of a Prior Center profile this week. Um, he brought up endorsements. Right, which what? used to matter. I mean— it, it did used to be a pretty big deal, yeah. even though, you know, the percentage—there might have been 100,000, though, right. uh, in this state, which at the time, what, 2 million— uh, Probably. I well, mean, and they, they weren't even voters. Right. So when you have 100,000 strong, that's, that's substantial. And making an endorsement of, of a candidate, especially a gubernatorial candidate, was a big deal. So this next clip sort of shows uh, kind of behind the scenes, you open the curtain to the process— And there was a process to uh, the union uh, endorsing a candidate. Becker Becker would make a recommendation, but it was the entire body. body. They would have a convention every year, and when it was an election year, they would do that. So in this case, in this interview, Becker is actually in the governor's conference room uh, when they pulled him aside, the reporters pulled him aside, and it was Governor David Pryor at the time, and he was running for re-election, and Becker was sort of weighing uh, whether he should recommend the uh, his re-election to the body. Just exactly how, in your view, does he stand with organized labor? Well, with some he stands very good, and with some he stands very bad with organized labor. How does he stand, he stand with you? How does he stand with uh, with me? Uh, I'm going to wait until all the candidates are filed, and he, and he comes to our convention, and we discuss with him some issues. And uh, we have a committee who will do the interviewing, and then a decision will be made for an, anyone to receive an endorsement. It takes a two-thirds vote of our convention. Well, you're indicating that his labor support has eroded somewhat. Is that erosion significant? I think it can be safely said that his labor support has eroded some. And just to show how much attention, you know, it can hmm. be argued how much actual influence it had, but how much attention uh, endorsements would get. Well, I mean, it made news. Yeah, exactly. It did. And the newspapers would cover the convention extensively. Television would cover the conventions because once they made votes on issues, but especially endorsements, uh, it would be worthy of news stories. And here is just a portion of a KETV report from uh, Judy Pryor. Some of the questions asked the governor today concern collective bargaining for public employees, questions on unemployment insurance, and the prison system and the construction of some buildings there. There are around 100,000 members of the AFL-CIO in the state of Arkansas. The announcement of just what candidates they will endorse should be made sometime tomorrow afternoon. This is Judy Pryor reporting. That's from KATV's Judy Pryor. It's one of the archives that we're using uh, this week from the Pryor Center um, 
for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. All right. There are certain things, I think, depending on your generation, you just, you probably intellectually know they haven't always been there, but it's always been a part of your life or part of the conversation around your life. Minimum wage being one of those for me. Oh, before 1968, there was no minimum wage in Arkansas. Right. You you could be paid anything. You could be, be paid <laughs> yeah, 75 cents an yeah. hour. Or in that case, it could have been 35 cents an hour and you're relying on tips or right. something along those lines. And you're right. There was no law. And one of Becker's biggest accomplishments in his time as president uh, was to push for legislation uh, in Arkansas for a minimum wage, and in 1968, uh, that happened. And he was uh, at the signing ceremony. Um, he was on hand when Governor Winthrop Rockefeller signed the bill into law. And he actually said that the passage of this law indicated that labor had reached its maturity in Arkansas. So he talked to reporters right after the signing. Mr. Becker, how do you feel that the increase in the minimum wage will affect the economy of the state? Well, I think it'll be a, a monumental factor in our social and economic progress and will help spread the abundance of our wealth uh, to some forgotten people who have needed it for a long, long time. Some observers feel that the increase in the minimum wage will cause a substantial rise in prices. How do you feel about this? Well, you know, the public might be concerned about this, except we've had 30 years of experience under federal minimum wage legislation. And uh, these prophets of disaster have said not only this, but that it would curtail employment opportunities. It just hasn't happened. The Wall Street Journal, as a matter of fact, did a study on this after the last increase in the minimum wage. And they found uh, that the employment and price structure showed little overall effect as a result of the minimum wage. Uh, I wish there were some concern expressed for the million dollars in Arkansas that is lost by some seven, 8,000 people uh, from chiseling uh, under the wage hour law. Then you feel that the economic reaction should be no different than in the past? No, it's going to help the economy by uh, pumping in some badly needed purchasing power. And uh, when you charge increased prices, I think you're just whipping the wrong mule. There are other factors involved in price increases. All right, let's go back a little bit to something we talked about for a bit last week, and that was the Constitutional Convention in Arkansas in 1968. It turns out that the the document that built was rejected by voters, so it, it didn't come into fruition. But J. Bill Becker was weighing in on it. Well, even if it were left out, we'd have a problem, uh, as we want it to be left out. Because of the mistakes they've made on interest rates, they've removed the ceiling entirely on interest rates. The loan sharks will have a field day in Arkansas. They're allowing the cities who are for city sales and payroll tax to pass those taxes without any guidelines. Uh, they, are, they have done several things like that. They're diluting the authority of the people on initiative and referendum. And these are major errors that need to be corrected before we would consider supporting any new document. Okay, so we've got the minimum wage passed. <laughs> we've got the uh, new constitution rejected. Right. So now we're moving into the 70s and we're talking recession. Gas prices were astronomical for yep. considered in the contemporary times and and jobless numbers were at all-time highs in Arkansas. Well, maybe not all-time highs because of the Depression, but at, you know, 
highs for the period. Right. And now what we're what we're moving into is 1974 when inflation was higher than it had been uh, post World War II in the 40s. So, um, of course, Becker is concerned about uh, the workers who are making this minimum wage or making a certain wage that may not keep up with inflation. Uh, and I'm not surprised. It's not unusual uh, because what we have is unchecked inflation. Uh, last year, the rate was 11.1 percent, which means, of course, that the purchasing power of these employees uh, is down drastically, and they're already at the bottom end of the economic uh, ladder. Uh, that's basically the problem. It's compounded by the fact, however, that there's no vehicle by way of a law, like a collective bargaining law, that would let them, uh, in an orderly way, present their demands and solve uh, uh, their problems and disputes. What was the inflation rate in 1974? <laughs> it was 12.4%. Now, right now, inflation is in the news mm -hmm. because it's just over 4%. Yeah. So let's talk three times higher than it is now. Mm. And uh, it was dismal. I mean, the, the fiscal outlook was, in a word, dismal. Um, so he... Uh, was asked by a reporter about what he saw in the year coming up. He was still worried about inflation. He was still worried about the workers keeping up, but the word strike came up. Well, the next year ahead, uh, I suppose, means uh, doing what we can to, to help fight inflation. Uh, at the same time, uh, catching up on, on all of the earning power that we've lost. Uh, and I suppose the year ahead will be the year of collective bargaining and perhaps of strikes, although, although we hope not. We hope that the Ford administration will do something about controlling inflation. It's the number one problem of working people and, of course, as the president has said, the number one public enemy, inflation. I'm talking about J. Bill Becker, uh, who was a longtime president of the Arkansas AFL-CIO for, for, for 30, more than 30 years. So he had relationships with a lot of governors, including the Bill Clinton, famous. Right. And he was not always um, seeing eye to eye with him. I mean, they would butt heads, and it was well covered. It was well known. And um, sometimes he would get the endorsement of labor. Sometimes he wouldn't. But something came up. Um, well, I was talking to his son, who I went to high school with, mm -hmm. on the phone the other day, and he he told him that uh, one of his, I guess you could call it a downfall or a, a blemish uh, for him, at least in Arkansas, uh, not for everyone, and unless you're a Bill Clinton fan, but during the 92 campaign. Um, this is Clinton's presidential campaign. Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you what he had to say, and it was in a New York Times uh, interview. I'm quoting, Bill Clinton is mainly the friend of big business. Labor has backed him in some of the past, true, but only because he's been the lesser of two evils in a right-to-work state in the Deep South. Then he even added, every time he's claimed to be our friend, we've ended up with a knife in the back. 
That's pretty strong stuff. He also went on CNN and talked about it. Uh, so that didn't necessarily go over too well in Arkansas. And when I talked to his son, um, he said his father was convinced that it cost him his final run for president of the AFL-CIO in, in 1996. Uh, he lost the election to uh, Alan Hughes. And so I asked Roby Brock about his legacy. Yeah, I think that Bill Becker was really um, a fighting man for fighting for the, the little guy and the Arkansas worker. His reputation was not as a compromiser, not as a backslapping good old boy with the you know, political system. He, he was an aggressive supporter of the labor movement and he fought very hard for um you know the the gains that they made and, and up at the legislature the things that they would fight for he he didn't mind punching you in the mouth in the heat of a battle that was his tactic was to you know kind of knock you backwards and make you deal with him versus you know finding a way to kind of you know work quietly behind the scenes he definitely was a was a fighter in that respect so when you think about um, what he said about Bill Clinton in the New York Times interview and on CNN, he probably lost a lot of support from Arkansas Democrats who saw Bill Clinton as a flag bearer. And that was probably almost all of them. Yeah. Uh, so it really it really hurt him. And uh, so he lost the election. He had had a heck of a run of more than 30 years. Uh, and so he was he was celebrated. Mm-hmm. He was um, by the union, and they, they had a, a huge retirement dinner for him in August of 97, and he died that same year in December. And at the time of his death, he was the longest-serving AFL-CIO president in the country. Oh, I can imagine. It was a legacy. Yeah. And that's exactly uh, what I'd ask Roby Brock about, but let's go ahead if— if we may, yes, yes. and let uh, J. Bill Becker have the last word. We like to feel that uh, we are a part of this society, although we fully recognize that there are certain elements in our society who, who disagree and would like to see us go away and uh, never be heard from again. But that's not a fact in our industrial democracy. In a free enterprise society, labor's, uh, labor does have a right to exist, and so do unions. But I think the workforce in, in our state is as good or better, has greater quality than anywhere in the country. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Thank you very much. It was great. I'll see you next week. During this year's Spring On Air fundraiser, KUAF is partnering with Sonic to say thank you to teachers and staff in school districts across our listening area. Each afternoon of our fundraiser from 3 to 7, we're asking for support for the public radio programming you rely on every day. And when we receive 25 gifts of $20 or more, we'll be able to provide an area school district with Sonic gift cards to treat a teacher. Support KUAF and support a teacher during our spring on-air fundraiser. The Razorback men's basketball team will head west to play Gonzaga in the NCAA tournament's round of 16 Thursday night. Razorbacks advance with a win over New Mexico State Saturday night. However, the season is over for the Razorback women. They lost Friday to Utah in the first round of the NCAA tournament to end the season 18 and 14, Amber Ramirez playing in her last collegiate game led Arkansas with 24 points. 
pesticide residue, and its effects on the health of Arkansas's native bee population. It's scratching the surface on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Neil Joshi, Associate Professor of Entomology at the U of A, is leading a team of researchers working with the health of Arkansas's native bee species. So far, we have documented uh, over 100 species in our lab. We are working on uh, different aspects of native bee health, including uh, impact of pesticides uh, on native bee species and how to mitigate uh, threats from pesticides. Joshi says the state could have as many as 400 different species of bees, but they're not what you might be used to. Most, if not all, Arkansas bees are solitary, meaning they're not part of a hive, and they live underground. Pearl Fan, a postdoctoral researcher and toxicologist, has been focused on not necessarily the lethal effects on native bees, but what happens when the pesticide residue is brought back to the nest. I'm following the whole life cycle of the solitary bees so that, so that I will know like uh, what, is, what is the effect, the sublethal effects of the pesticide on the larvae and the development of the solitary bees. The honeybee is just a very small branch of the bee family, so we need to know what is the pesticide effect on the solitary bees. Olivia Klein, an entomology PhD student, is researching how a native solitary bee's physiology can help in lessening or possibly negating the effects of pesticides. And she's focused on the bee's gut bacteria. So there's a lot of more information that we have about the gut microbes in honeybees and to some extent bumblebees, but these uh, native solitary bees, mason bees that we're working with, we just don't know a lot about their gut microbiome and how it might impact their health. So we're looking at how pesticides might affect their gut microbiome, so their bacteria, and also how those microbes might be able to potentially detoxify pesticides. Lead researcher Neil Joshi says they hope to have their findings published in about a year. He says they also hope to conduct public education programs about the state of Arkansas's native bee species. If you'd like more, aaes.uada.edu. Scratching the Surface is a production of KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Tomorrow on Ozarks, the Going Snake Tragedy. 150 years ago next month, what is believed to be the deadliest gunfight between citizens in American history took place near the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. The U.S. Marshals Museum will host a symposium. We'll tell you more on tomorrow's show at noon and 7. KUAF is supported by Entertainment Fort Smith a monthly magazine with a comprehensive calendar of events covering live performances, dining, home design, lifestyles, and people profiles. Available at over 200 locations and on the web at efortsmith.com. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, welcoming classic country rock group Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to the auditorium in Eureka Springs Thursday, June 9th. Band hits include Mr. Bojangles, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, House at Pooh Corner, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets at thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Thursday night, the Arkansas Cinema Society and Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art are teaming up again for a free movie night. The updated noir and Oscar-nominated 2021 version of Nightmare Alley it's part of a double feature, along with the short film Pillow, a movie from Arkansas-based filmmaking brothers Josh and Miles Miller, starring Ed Lowry and John Eisner. Pillow is a gothic tale bathed in magical realism, 
about two brothers who have a quest to find a pillow for their very demanding mother. To say any more about the plot is to give too much away about the 18 and a half minute film. This, however, can be shared. The dialogue is spare, but the scenery, acting, music, and sound weave a mysterious and unsettling story. Last week, we spent a few minutes on Zoom with the Miller brothers talking about Pillow. I asked them about the importance of sound in this film and how much they considered the use of sound for the movie. A lot. Oh, <laughs> had had a, uh, uh, writing the script and so I had uh, like sound design notes. It was uh, 12 pages worth of description and sound design. Basically, no, no dialogue, except off screen, you know. But, uh, yeah, with well, as little dialogue as it is, I mean, sound was yeah. a major component to this film. Mm -hmm. And Dwight Chalmers, who is an amazing sound designer, uh, who's gone on to do a ton of work. Um, and he did work before this, too. But I mean, he uh, yeah, he was instrumental, obviously, in helping us sort of come up with those sounds and, and design the sound for the film. I have a favorite sound which I don't know if that sounds weird or not, but I have a favorite sound, and it's getting up from the chair. Hello. Hello. That creak. <laughs> Absolutely. If sound is important in this film, faces are even more important. And I'm wondering... How do you direct these two incredibly talented actors to get just the right look when they're exchanging looks with each other? I mean, I think casting was the was all of it. I mean, it, uh, yeah, Ed Lowry, we had worked with a little bit before. Um, and, you know, whenever we wrote this, we wrote this in like June. We were going to shoot it in August. So it was pretty quick. And I, I just remember seeing Ed at the Little Rock Film Festival. We, we were like, Ed's the guy. So we knew Ed was the guy. And then um, I can't remember exactly how John came on board. If Ed we, introduced us we to John. Him. Yeah. Or I guess. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and when we saw him, I mean, it's like he's perfect. So I think most of that is in casting and they just had it. They mm -hmm. understood the the role. And we had a we had a backstory for everything, too. And uh you know, let them like how they grew up and, and their lives and, you know, what they were, you know, how they, what, what, how they became to be and got to that situation. So I think they, uh, they got into it. They're great actors. Yeah. We just got them together a few times and, yeah. and they had it. I mean, it was obvious that they definitely understood what we were going for. And it was, it was pretty torturous and out there. It was pretty hot and the house was <laughs> frying, you know? Oh yeah. So that, uh, you know, they, they were uh, pitiful like that. Uh, mm -hmm. There is, so it's, I don't know, about 19 minutes. There's a point, and I don't want to give it away, but there's a point in the film where things get really uncomfortable. And maybe it's different for other people. But for me, how can I say this without giving anything away? It's when they come back into the, ha the house or the cabin and something yeah. is there. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. in any other scene would be a wonderful thing. But it's like, uh-oh. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a welcome home party. <laughs> <laughs> it's one way of 
We're looking at it for yeah. sure. What about uh, Michael Sutterfield? Is that whose voice we hear doing Amazing Grace? talented musician and uh, filmmaker friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I just got off the phone with him before I came in here, actually. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's amazing. You know, we uh, we want an amazing grace, like uh, like like a Leonard Cohen later day mixed with uh, like Tom Waits, like something. Waits. And, and uh, yeah. he watched the cut of Pillow and uh, went home and wrote that almost perfectly without taking it home looking and just made minor adjustments. You know, but he he just had it like that. He's a talented guy. Yeah, he's super totally. talented. Yeah. Yeah, he nailed it. We, we love what he did yeah. with that song. Awesome. One of the great things about a movie like this is you let us fill in. So you have a backstory for the brothers, but I bet mm-hmm. it's not the same backstory I have created since I've seen the film. This is like, a, you know, a painting in a gallery. It's like, I'm going to fill in what I want to fill in. Mm-hmm. Well, Definitely. I mean, were you that's busy? great. Yeah. And, and, you know, it could be a, a permanent installation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we like these brothers. I mean, obviously they've been around each other their whole lives. So we love the idea of them sort of saying things without having to say any words. I mean, they, they've been through everything together. So for those of us who don't make films and this has costume, I mean, there's costuming, there's makeup, there's hair, there's sound, there's all of this. What's the most difficult thing that we don't think about when we watch? Oh my gosh. All of it. Yeah. I mean, mean, every single part of it. It's that. I wish there was an easy answer to that question, but literally all of it. I mean, it, it is way harder than anyone would ever imagine. Um, but I mean, the prep work that goes into it, um, I mean, cause we had, you know, a few weeks of, of pre-production, just well, getting everything. We almost had two years, you know, we, we, we prepared a long time. Like we were going to shoot it one year and it kind of got put off. So we, we, we already kind of knew what we were doing and we like to pre, you know, do a lot of pre-production. The more pre-production you do, the less mistakes it's going to happen during production that, or during but, uh, you know, it was a smooth shoot altogether. It was tough. Yeah. I mean, we shot over five days. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, like he said earlier, it was the hottest summer that I remember. I mean, and, and all of our locations were miserable. I mean, in the middle of a cornfield with no shade, no airflow. Uh, I mean, it was over 110 degrees that day, I think. And then in that old house with no air conditioning, uh, about 130 degrees in the attic with lights, with lights yeah. on. Yeah. I was, uh, so I was yeah, but I mean, it's, uh, I, it's impossible to, to let someone know who's never done it, how hard it is. And yeah. Finally, what I think is wonderful about a, a movie like this, that is so, uh, 
so delicately created is that even a fraction of a second matters. And there, mm. toward the end, there's a sound. It's a fly. Yeah. Oh. That, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the film would have been great without it, but oh my gosh. That half second is perfect. Yeah. yeah, and it was a big deal. I mean, the fly, we thought about yeah. a lot. The fly's been actually, in uh, the same fly used it in other, in like, uh, all other things we've done and produced, and it's been another. We've let other people use it, so it needs its own IMDb credit. Yeah, it's like I want that. I want that thing to be uh, famous. Yeah, yeah, because we thought about that fly a lot. So I'm glad that oh, yeah. that you said that. Joshua and Miles Miller, creators of the movie Pillow, talked with us by Zoom last week. The short film will be screened along with the 2021 version of Nightmare Alley Thursday night at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. There is no charge, but pre-registration is required. You can do that and find out more at crystalbridges.org. The screening is presented by the Arkansas Cinema Society. The Miller Brothers have also collaborated on a feature-length film, All the Birds Have Flown South, starring Joey Lauren Adams. Yeah, this is Andy Winger. I'm calling from Bella Vista. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. I am Nora Cully, a seventh grader from Haas Hall Academy. Thank you for all that you do. This is Ray Dean Trees Nearing. I love you, K-U-A-F. My name is Rebecca Cavanaugh, calling from Springdale, Arkansas. Thank you so much to Public Radio. Thanks. Bye. Hey, K-U-A-F. It's Flytimer from Fayetteville. Thanks for letting us call in. Bye. Before we leave you this Monday, the Walmart Amp Summer Season is adding a couple more concerts. Today, the venue announced Willie Nelson Family will headline a concert Friday, July 1st. Tickets go on sale at noon Friday through the usual Walton Art Center outlets. Dirk Bentley will return to the Amp in August. Country Star will play Thursday, August 4th. Tickets for that show go on sale Friday morning at 10. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Avoca. Today's show was produced inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio by Timothy Dennis. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, who produces his work inside the Karen Taha News Studio, Pete Hartman, and Randy Dixon. Thank you so much for being with us this Monday. We are with you again tomorrow at noon and 7. You can always listen to us through the free Ozarks at Large daily podcast. I'm Kyle Kellums. Be safe. We'll talk again very soon.